Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Today we're going to talk about neuroscience of pleasure. But before I tell you more about this episode, I have an invitation for you. I'm going live in next couple of weeks and I'm hosting a free masterclass. In this masterclass, I'm going to talk about the roadmap to changing your sex life with your spouse, I get a lot of questions from long-term couples that they feel sexually bored in their relationship. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to go live, answer some of the questions and share some of the findings and solutions that I discovered working with hundreds of couples so far. So we're going to talk about the reasons that people are experiencing sexual boredom. We're going to talk about common mistake that people make when they want to resolve these issues. And I'm going to share uh, some of the strategies that I think it will be useful for couples. Again, this masterclass is completely free. It's my gift to you. You can sign up for it and the link in the show notes. Our guest today is Dr. Nan Wise. She's is a certified sex therapist, certified relationship specialist, neuroscience researcher, and author of Why Good Sex Matters, Understanding the Neuroscience of Pleasure for Smarter, Happier, and More Purpose-Filled Life. She has many accolades. Make sure you're checking out her full bio in the show notes. We're going to talk in this episode about why some of us are feeling ambivalent about pleasure, and we're going to talk about differences between stimulation and satisfaction and how we can overcome low desire. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Nan Weiss. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Nan Weiss on our show. Dr. Nan, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm very excited about this conversation. I was sharing with you right before we started the recording that I I read and I receive uh, lots of books from colleagues that they're talking about kind of psychology of sex challenges that people have, which are again, wonderful books. And I love them all. And I appreciate that people are doing this work. But what I loved about your book is that you talk about kind of neuroscience, neurobiology of the brain and sex. That's the area that's definitely on studies. Tell us, how did you get interested writing this book? The way I got around to writing this book is my life. I was born to a family, all of whom have pretty high levels of anxiety. So like our rite of passage, instead of having some sort of ceremony, it's your first anxiety attack. So as a result of that, I was always curious about what I could do to manage my own rather reactive nervous system. And so I did therapy. I did all sorts of different things like 
I started with psychodynamic psychotherapy, a little bit of a slow game where the therapist was saying, oh, it's because you're angry with your mother. Mm, I'm not quite sure that's the whole story. So then I did professional trainings like in Harvard Mind Body Institute in behavioral medicine. I worked uh, on myself with John Kapitzen in his professional training, mindfulness. I studied Gestalt therapy. I then went really deep into Ericksonian hypnotherapy. I found these tools so good for me. And I was able to kind of teach what I needed to know. And it worked pretty well. So I put together all these kinds of tools. And I was working with that with my clients. But then I had the opportunity to jump into going back to school to study what I was always wanting to study, which was the brain. So they didn't have these methods that were non-invasive to study the brain when I was in college or my first round of graduate school. So when it came time that I could actually go and study the brain, I was introduced to Beverly Whipple, who we all know is one of the big pioneers of sex, sex science. She reconnected me with Barry Kamasrek, who I had done some work with years and years before that at the Animal Behavior Institute. We put the two things together. They said, we need you at the lab. Next thing I knew at the age of 50, I was back in grad school, the, the world's oldest teaching assistant. And I did the PhD in neuroscience. I would call behavioral neuroscience because, you know, and the sex stuff has been so understudied. There were so many gaps in the literature. So that's how actually the book was first going to be a story about the ladies of the lab, the women who came and donated orgasms for science. They were spectacular, ranging in age from 24 to 75. Oh, and wow. I thought, I thought like, and I interviewed them. I did more. I studied their brains, but I also asked them lots of questions. How did they get to the point that they were so comfortable that they could come into a the least sexiest place in the world, the fMRI scanner, and donate an orgasm? Actually, two orgasms, one self self stimulated and the other stimulated by their partner. And they told me their stories, so I figured, let me create a book. That's the lessons from the ladies of the lab. And I actually, I really owe this to my co-writer, Billy Fitzpatrick, who hooked me up with the agent that we, Billy, Billy got me to EFOD, Gendel Reese at Foundry. And she had like the biggest picture for the book, which was really looking at anhedonia, the inability to experience pleasure. And that's really what the book is about. So sex is a window into our relationship with pleasure. And beneath that, the tonality of our core emotional systems. So if I can digress a moment to talk about those core systems, we share with all mammals and certainly a lot of other animals too, evolutionarily ancient core visceral embodied emotions in the oldest parts of our brain. Psychology does not address this. It's a relatively new finding. Jak Panksept, who is that neuroscientist who mapped it out, unfortunately died a couple of years back. And, you know, paradigms take time to change. So we 
don't really incorporate understanding how these embodied emotions can hijack us. The defense is fear, rage, panic, grief is what happens when we're disconnected from, you know, key relationships and resources. And when the defenses get triggered, we can get hijacked. So even if we're smart at the top of our brains, like we know we should eat less, you know, drink more water, less alcohol, talk to our partners, have more sex. It's very difficult to harness our attention and our motivation to change our behaviors based on what's happening in the very basement of the brain. So, for example, my family, we all have that anxiety wiring. And then all you need is to have some bumpy experiences that can condition us to have aversive sort of reactions to connections, to sexuality, to trust in relationships, to feeling safe. And then you put those two levels of the mind together and it basically hijacks our actually our thinking brain. I love that. You know, as you were talking about this a journey that you were on, I like now I desperately want to read the second book as well. <laughs> the story of women that who donated orgasm because I think it's fascinating about kind of like uh, like the kind of people that are that open and they're able to access their pleasure so quickly. So do you have any gems from those women that you want to share with us? Chapter nine, my last chapter, I tell some stories like lessons from about how to create sexual potential. And yes, there was one woman. Actually, she was actually earlier in the book. She wasn't from I actually tell stories from clients in my practice, too. But the ladies from the lab, one gal had been basically like sexually abused by a coach. And she had a lot of issues about intimacy and sexuality. And so she had issues about her body and feeling safe and feeling beautiful and comfortable. She got over that. She created a magnificent partner. And she and her partner were basically my go-to people when it came to piloting my study. So when the first time that I actually had, I I originally started with just the woman in the scanner doing her own orgasm. And then when it came time to pilot the study to have a partner reaching in to the scanner and trying to create like a clitoral orgasm, they were my go-to people. There was a woman who was 75 years old when she came to us. She had been raised where it was actually abroad, where they actually in a convent where she had to take a bath with a sheet on her because oh looking at your body and touching your body was so taboo. Her, fir- her marriage wasn't good. Her husband wasn't sexually patient with her. It wasn't until her kids grew up that she got divorced and moved to this country that she uncovered her sexual potential. She made it a priority. And she actually had two orgasms in the scanner, one by wow. self, self-stimulation, the other by a, a with a little help from her partner friend. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, like, what a strong connection they had. I think like some people, even with the slightest sound, they're not able to uh, experience orgasm, but it seemed like for them, they were able to access it no matter what. 
and factor in how you have to keep your head really, really still. <laughs> so in a scanner, you know, fMRI scanners, any head movement will completely, you know, mess up your data. So I had them practice keeping their head still. And it took me about two years to develop a contraption that they could wear on their heads in the scanner to help keep their heads stabilized. So can you imagine with that loud noise, boom, 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 and being in this scanner and kind of having to keep yourself as still as possible while you're self-stimulating, being able to access that kind of level of sexual pleasure. Well, she sounds like a professional athlete, sounds like one of those stories that they say like someone couldn't walk and they started running in uh, Olympics. <laughs> well, you know, now that you mention it, it, it really makes sense that, and one of the big findings from my research is really to reinforce the idea that the brain mind is the most important sex organ of all. So these women were able to focus so effectively on the sensations mm -hmm. and to be, and they had also developed very good wiring between the genitals and the brain. They had laid down their pleasure pathways. And, you know, in neuroscience, we have this, it's called Hebb's law. The neurons are the cells that fire together, wire together. So the more that women can explore their bodies and the pleasure in their bodies and lay down the connections between their genitals and the sensory pleasure regions in the brain, the easier it is to access sexual sensations. And the more you can focus on them, the better. So one of my studies actually was my one long, very long dissertation study where it was basically, you know, you want to get all the data you can. Scans are expensive. You want to be able to get out of your PhD, you know, with data. So one of the conditions before they even touch themselves was to think about having a dildo inserted, like a pleasurable imagination thing versus in another trial, another separate trial before any touch, to imagine having a pelvic exam with a speculum inserted into the vagina. So we were absolutely so surprised to see, and I had a hunch in some preliminary data from an earlier study that we did when I was in graduate school that in the condition of imagining pleasurable insertion and stimulation from a dildo, the ground zero for the pleasure places in the brain lit up like a Christmas tree, very similar to orgasm. Interesting. That's fascinating. And what a wonderful kind of like the depth of the various studies that you did. I think it's fascinating. No wonder the book is filled with lots of great information. I love that you talk about anhedonia and this connection between our ability to access pleasure and sexual pleasure. Can you tell us more about that? That maybe the neurobiology of pleasure and how are these all connected? Well, you know, to kind of ease our way into the conversation about anhedonia as a clinical psychologist, I'm sure that you are familiar with the inability to experience pleasure is a major uh, symptom of depression, anxiety, and other kinds of uh, emotional disorders. So when the pleasure system is not working, it's really hard to get up in the morning and feel good about your day. So, you know, the pleasure system is really kind of complicated. 
there's basically two parts of it. When we think of reward and dopamine, what we're really thinking of is not so much the satisfaction kind of pleasure. It's more of the wanting and the craving and the motivation. And it's called the seeking system. So when that system is very activated and people are seeking and seeking and seeking, like when they're on computers and they're clicking, 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 you know, what happens is it interferes with the learning signal that pleasure is supposed to give us. Pleasure is actually a learning signal. What's good for us and what's not so good for us we want to approach things that feel good. We want to avoid things that hurt or, or are unpleasant. So that system has been hijacked by the way we use our attention. And the other thing, when we want to talk about neurobiology of this, stress, the kind of stress that we have as a result of our lifestyle, where we're constantly kind of like barrage with all the stimuli where we're, it's like bigger, harder, better. We've got to keep running and certainly factor in COVID hasn't helped, but it was going on way before COVID. The long-term stress and the resulting flood of cortisol and adrenal fatigue will flatten the dopamine system. And so like actually your stress hormones steal the dopamine. So that's where people get very flat. Mm. So dopamine, when it's working, gives us like curiosity, motivation, interest, enthusiasm to go into the world and to meet our needs. And what we really need is not another click on social media. What we need is connection. And the connection system, like I have my dog sitting on my lap right now, that's mediated by our internal opiates. And those are the neuropeptides that feel good and are, are good for us, that give us the sense of satisfaction, peaceful connection, a feeling of well-being. So anhedonia can be looked at as the absence of enthusiasm, motivation, a feeling of even craving and wanting, and an inability to experience satisfying pleasures from everyday life. And I look at it like one of the sort of ways, one of my points about all of this what is to popularize the notion that we really need to understand the imbalances in these core systems that show up in our bodies. We always know, we always know that we're feeling afraid or enraged or a panicky. We know when we feel lusty. We know when we feel like that warm feeling of caring and safety the top of the mind gets very complicated. So researchers focus on all this complicated cognitive infused emotions. And they think we can think ourselves out of a bad mood. And that doesn't work so good if we're not work working with balancing, I think, the uh, flight or fight system so that we can get out of the defenses and then get into that kind of healing, restorative tone where our where we have actually access to our affiliative systems. Play is a big one. Play is so flat. So I think I mentioned there's fear, rage, panic, grief, and the defenses. We've got seeking that gets us, you know, into the world and motivated. And then there's play, care, and lust as the other affiliative systems. And so when people don't feel safe, they don't feel playful. They don't feel connected with their lust and sometimes even depleted from the care system. 
Well, I'm so glad in the book you're highlighting the connection between us feeling kind of connecting with pleasure overall and people's kind of this energy of lustfulness and kind of accessing their eroticism. Because at times I, I work with clients that they're coming in because they have low desire. But with many of these individuals, when we talk about pleasure overall, they just don't allow themselves to lean into pleasure. And that's something that they learn to suppress and ignore and kind of feel like there's no fun function to it. So therefore, like, it's hard for them to connect with their sexual pleasure. So tell us, like, I know in the book, one, one part that it was really awesome, you're talking about our ambivalence about pleasure. So tell us, how does our ambivalence about pleasure get in our way of kind of having the life that we want? Well, we can thank our Puritan ancestors that had, they were so extreme in their beliefs that they kind of left their homelands and came here. And what's happened is, and it still exists, to this day, we have, I call us lewd, crude nation. So we're obsessed with sex. We had a, I don't even know if you want to call him the, the former president who used to say you could grab women by their genitals, right? That's okay. But when you look at it, there's a very deep, dis- well, I don't know that that's okay, but you know, there's an acceptance of this idea of our deeply embedded ambivalence about pleasure that's even shows up in how we approach things like, for example, everybody should work so hard. Nobody should get a free ride. Therefore, we don't have national health insurance. We are very deeply troubled, I think, as a nation with thinking about how we can approach things in a way where there's a positive approach to our erotic capacity to be especially in our bodies. I think the major cause of anhedonia for many of us is the mind. We're so in the mind. We're not in our body. We're not attuned to the sensations of the body. And we get trained that, you know, for example, sex is okay for men, for women, eh, too much sexual pleasure for a woman. She's going to be considered like a nymph, you know, somebody who's a, and if people want to have sex a lot, they're sex addicts. Like we have a very, I think, limiting, puritanically infused, deeply ambivalent obsession and also discomfort with our bodies and our sexualities. And I'd like to say one more thing about that is that I think people are better, really better citizens when they're in their body. They're much more connected with their empathy. They're much more connected with feeling other people's feelings. People are better followers when they're not in touch with their bodies. So they're just kind of in their ideas And I think this is what lets people go down some of those really dark paths of these, you know, a lot of the people who have these extreme beliefs, for example, of conspiracy theories are seriously mentally ill. And I love to talk about there was a famous study in psychology, the Milgram study, where people were shocking supposedly these uh, other subjects and it was confederates. It was a deceptive study. They weren't really getting shocks, but everybody was shocked about how far the participants would go when they actually thought they were shocking other people in the study. 
And that was actually started by Stan, uh, Stanley Milgram, who was uh, a Jewish person who was very interested in how did the Holocaust, how did like ostensibly like normal, nice people do these horrible things? So it was all about following authority and threading back to the only thing that they could differentiate between the people who refused to push the button to shock, shock, shock. Wasn't religion, wasn't gender, wasn't anything other than the people said, oh, it made me feel sick in my own body. Mm. So, you know, when we are tuned to our own bodies, it's really hard to hurt somebody else. Yeah. I love that. You know, what's interesting is it's almost the opposite of what people believe. Because at times when I do kind of get clients, I do talk about this kind of like kind of this idea that they have about like ambivalence about like leaning into sexual pleasure. And sometimes people say, you know, it's just like uh, sexual people, are, they feel shallow. They feel like they don't have depth. I don't want to be like that. But what I'm hearing, it seems like when you're really tapping into pleasure and you're finding pleasure in your body and you're paying attention to your body, you can actually be, as you said, better citizen, be more kind of in tune with what's happening. I know in the book, you talk about like kind of the pleasure, kind of like paying attention, accessing our sexual potential makes us smarter, happier, and more productive. Is that what you were referring to? Yes, because also on another level, the capacity for us to relax and to experience the benefits of the body, mind, you know, spirit working together to release tension. The neuropeptides alone that are released during sexual stimulation and orgasm are really good for the brain body. Sexual behavior, Beverly Whipple did a white paper back in the day. I think it was in the 80s. They've updated it over and over again about this, the benefits of sexual activity. We feel better when we're embodied and we can experience the pleasures and the chemistry of the healing aspects. And also the, it's really kind of like bonding. No, it's not kind of like bonding. It's really bonding. We can bond with ourselves through pleasure and loving our bodies. We can bond with our partners. I think for couples, it sort of like lubricates a lot of our tensions when we can enjoy each other erotically. And I think at the end of the day, when people are in their bodies, they're eating better, they're taking care of their bodies, they're, they're exercising, they're more balanced. And then their emotional brains are more, more balanced. And when people are more balanced in terms of less defensive, more creative, more resourceful, they're more productive. Yes. And, go yeah. Ahead. I love that. I, I was, that was affirmative. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, you know, that's the bottom line. And I'm saying it's not like we have to have sex to have pleasure. People can actually have a perfectly wonderful life not having sex if that's their choice, but their ability to experience being turned on by life, the expanded idea of erotic, turned on by life, turned on by connection with people. I think, you know, one of the lessons of people who have good quality sex over a lifetime sexual potential they don't talk about their genitals they don't talk about orgasms they talk about connection and so if you know i mean we all know that the quality of our intimate relationships is probably the biggest predictor of how long and well we'll live 
if the ability to experience pleasure with our partners bonds us, which it does, and gives us healthy hedonism, you know, because eating two bags of Doritos tastes good, but it's not good for us. And that's really where our pleasures are sort of heading. The clicks, you know, the craving clicks, you know, the clicking on social media or they're wa- us watching four things at once. It's like stimulating, but it's not satisfying and actually messes with our brain. Well, I love that. And, you know, one thing that I've been talking to my, like I have this analyst that I've been seeing for, I don't know, a lot, a lot of years. And we talk about, he talks about how excitement and pleasure is different. So it seems like, you know, as you're talking about, like, you know, watching four different things at the same time can be exciting, but is it pleasurable? I think that's such an important point. Exactly. It's there's separate neuroanatomical pathways in chemistry of the excitement, which is really like it's wanting. Dopamine encodes wanting. So it gets us motivated to have experiences, but it's not satisfying. And most drugs of abuse, they actually release dopamine. If it was satisfying, they wouldn't have people wouldn't have to keep taking drugs. I remember years ago, the actor Morton Downey Jr., who was like such a bad boy back in the day, but a sweetie. Everybody loved him. And he's sober and clean. But I remember watching him talk on, I think it might have been even The Tonight Show. They asked him what his favorite drug was. And he said more. So it's not satisfying. (laughs) So the wanting is not the same as the liking. The satisfaction system is really the circuitry of the care circuits that are really uh, powered by our internal opioids and also things like um, oxytocin. So like Julie and I are sitting here, my little chihuahua, and we're probably going into a entraining of our nervous systems where when we're close to and cuddly and comfortable with a four-legged or a two-legged companion, there is that natural release of these feel-good, good-for-you, you know, peptides that are all about the liking and the satisfaction. Well, Dr. Nan, I can listen to you for hours. <laughs> I actually watch you for hours because for our listeners, as you mentioned, you have your dog and your lab just like so well behaved and uh, you know, your wealth of great information. But we're toward the end of our time. And I know you mentioned that you have wonderful gifts for our listeners. I want to make sure that you can share that with them. Sure. All of your listeners are welcome to visit my website, which is AskDrNan.com. Doctor spelled out with all the letters, D-O-C-T-O-R, AskDrNan.com. Your uh, listeners can book a free 15-minute phone consult with me anywhere in the world because I work with people all over the world. If we can't do phone, we can work on WhatsApp or we can do a Zoom call. And I will extend your reader, excuse me, listeners, different modality, (laughs) uh, anybody who identifies him or her or they they (laughs) to be inclusive, identify themselves as having heard me on your podcast. I'll give them a deep 
sexology discount. I work with people very short term, four to six sessions to work on helping people balance their core emotional systems, work on enhancing their capacity for connection with partners. I do work with individuals, with couples, and some of my couples aren't two people. I work with people with all sorts of different love styles and lifestyles. So, and the coaching part is really helping people develop the tools that they can take out on the road and practice and stay in touch with me and get coaching between and after the sessions. What a steal and what a beautiful gift. We were talking right before I started recording that uh, sometimes people feel like they're scared of going to therapy because they they kind of hesitant to make commitment to years and years. They said that I, I've been in therapy for years because I love it, but I feel like sometimes people kind of want to cultivate some skills and some boosts and so they can kind of like apply that themselves. So it seems like your approach is like more actionable. That's something that they can use. Yeah, you know, I understand. And it's lovely to have supportive psychotherapy. I provide that to people too. And I myself was in a whole bunch of different kinds of therapies at different times in my life. And that's a wonderful connection. It's nice, especially for us to be able to go talk to somebody else when we listen to people all the time and have that support. And as you acknowledge, there are certain skill sets And like a lot of what I do is I help people train their uh, nervous systems with and through using breath and energy locks that I've worked with on myself that work so good. I used to have so much anxiety about public speaking Mm. to the point when I remember when I started grad school, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to do talks. I'm going to have to do a dissertation proposal, a defense. Well, let me tell you, from working on my own nervous system and also just getting out and doing it, you know, doing these things that the best sort of credibility story about how good, you know, for somebody who has anxiety, like I do, it doesn't bother me anywhere like it used to. I actually, before um, COVID, I went on the week before New York or the week New York shut down, got interviewed by Maria Shriver, wasn't nervous. I had so much fun. I was excited. I was thrilled. I was so present. And I said to myself, holy Minoli, this is what happens when you practice tools. And at this point in my life, you know, really what motivates me is to really, you know, reach as many people as possible, which is the point of the book, so that I can, you know, really encourage people to have the kind of pleasure-promoting life that makes us better people. Better people, truly. Amen. (laughs) I love that. And I think it's wonderful that you've applied these strategies that are kind of evidence-based yourself and you see results. And they're rooted in science. So I what a great offering. And I leave a link to the website in the show notes. So people if they get a chance to write it down, they can access it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It was delightful to have this conversation with you. And thank you for making this show possible and creating this vehicle in two different countries and two different languages to promote this idea of the importance of our embodied connection. Thank you. That's so kind of you to say. Have a lovely day. You too. Thank you.
I hope you found our conversation useful. I always love it when my colleagues are doing wonderful research and legit research when it comes to science of sex and pleasure. And I really appreciate Dr. Nan coming on the show and sharing her experiences with us. Guys, don't forget to sign up for the master class and I will see you in class in the next couple of weeks. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.